0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. The Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame induction ceremony begins this afternoon, and you will see the guys who are being inducted honored tonight as the Knights take on the Guelph Storm. One of those individuals played three years for the Knights, put up all kinds of points, scored all kinds of goals, and then went on to a great professional career, largely in the WHA, made it to the National Hockey League, played a bit in Europe. Reg Thomas. Reg, congratulations.
1: Well, it's quite an honor, Mike. Uh, you know, the more you think of it and the more days you have to think about it, it for the thousands of kids that have gone through the organization, um, and I'm getting some phone calls from, from different people that uh, congratulating me, and, and uh, it is quite an honor.
0: Well, if we take a look, you're going into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame and your hockey career in Major Junior that would eventually go on to the WHL and the National Hockey League, and that began kind of at the same time as Don Brankley, didn't it?
1: First year, uh, when when I started my Junior A career, Donnie, that was his first year, and he actually lived at our place, uh, at my mom and dad's place, for three or four years, and, and uh He was more like a brother to me. Uh, You know, we got to play cards at night and and thrash around some different things and outside of hockey and and with hockey. And uh, I just wish my mom and dad and and Donnie were still here to, to see this, but I know they're smiling down from up above.
0: Well, you look at the years that you played in London, you were a guy who could put the puck into the net and put up points. Was hockey something that, I don't want to say came easy to you, but something that that you just excelled at from the start?
1: Well, I think it was everybody's dream to play in the National Hockey League, and I mean, every kid has that dream, I think, when he starts out. And and, uh, my dad built us a, a big hockey rink in the backyard, and And, uh, it just grew from there. I mean, we, he was a factory worker at the time and, and, uh, you know, I I mean, during that era, I mean, you, you did everything outdoors, whether it was wintertime or summertime. And, and, uh, I mean, we dreamed of, of, of the big thing, I guess. And, and they never took that dream away from me. And, and as the years, you know, went up through the years, uh, and then I had a chance to play with basically a hometown team, um, it, uh, it, you know, and then who knew? I mean, it was a it was an honor to play each level that I went up in. You know, I mean, minor hockey in Lambeth, and then Junior D, and then Junior B with with London, and and then Junior A. You're going wow, you know, you just kept going up the ladder, and and pretty soon it was draft day, and and you went on from there. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I wouldn't say it came easy. I mean, I you got to work at it, and and. Uh, but, it, it boy, it, 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 it was a wonderful life.
0: Reg Thomas joining us as he gets said to be enshrined in the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame today. Draft day came, and you were drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks. But you had a decision to make because the WHA was starting. Take us back to that moment and the things that were kind of considered by a lot of hockey players, NHL, WHA.
1: Well, it, yeah, I mean – I was over thrilled to get drafted by the NHL, and, and uh, but they were truthfully, truthfully with me right off the bat. They they said that they were going to send us to send me to Dallas uh, because they still had Stan Makita and Eric next to Wrinkle and all the old boys that were winding down their careers, and they said they didn't really see me being there for uh, for two more years. And the WHA drafted me first first uh, first round, and uh, Bobby Hall signed the first million-dollar contract with with Winnipeg. And as soon as he did that, that made my mind up that I was going in that direction.
0: (laughs) And you did, and you went to the L.A. Sharks. A lot of people don't even think of the L.A. Sharks, even when they think of the WHA. What was that moment like? Because hockey was not what hockey is in California right now. It was a whole lot different, and you're playing for a a kind of a a new team. Uh, (laughs) What was the experience like in L.A.?
1: Boy, you you took a kid out of the country and uh, gravel roads and two-lane highways, and all of a sudden I land in L.A. and it's six and eight-lane freeways. And and uh, actually, I I got a place on Newport Beach, and you look out the window and the ocean's coming in, and you're going, "Boy, we've got a hockey game tonight." And it was totally a different mindset. There's no doubt about it. And even our practice rink at that time, they it was a figure skating rink, and they had to put mesh up when we practiced. And uh, I mean, it was probably until. Wayne Gretzky almost went there and the, when minor hockey and everything took off. But, uh, I mean, the L.A. Kings were in one spot of the city and we were in another spot. And we uh, walked out our, our arena, which was right outside the USC uh, Coliseum. And uh, it, it, was, it was unbelievable for a, a, a small-town kid uh, and going to the big town of L.A.
0: As the WHA grew, progressed, there were some wild stories from that league of, you know, glass boards and just trying to do things differently. Was it a wild experience? Did you look around the room sometimes and say, can you believe what's going on?
1: Well, it was. I mean, the first few years, I mean, I was in it for six years. The WHA lasted seven. Um, I wasn't there the first year it started. But uh, from the second year on, I mean, the, the the player personnel was changing game to game almost, and and when we got down to the last three years of the league, I mean we had some great hockey players, and I mean Gretzky and Messier and and Mark Tardiff and Rijon Houle and and Bobby Hall Gordy Howe, I mean the list goes on and on and on, and uh, yeah, glass boards in in uh, Minnesota or Saint Paul at the time, um, we uh, I got to. Play against the uh, the well the Hansen brothers, but they were co- the Carlson brothers actually, and uh, there was a lot of colorful guys in it. Uh, Ogie Oglethorpe or, or Bill Goldthorpe was uh, was actually I played with him on the same team, and uh, I mean you could go back through even the slap shot days, and a lot of things in slap shot were actually were true, and people probably shake their head and thought it was a, it a lot of comedy, but it uh, you could sit down with them and point out the things that uh, were actually true in that in that movie.
0: Reg Thomas going into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame today and then after the WHL kind of did fold off you went to the National Hockey League and did get to realize that dream. What was that moment like?
1: Well the the day I, w- I was brought up I was leading the American League down in Moncton in scoring and the Leafs brought me up and I got to sit on the padded benches in Maple Leaf Gardens. My name went across the blinking light at the end and and uh, I thought that was pretty cool. We were playing Don Cherry's, uh, uh, I think it was Kansas City at that time that he was there. And uh, first period went by, and I didn't see any ice. Second period went by, no ice. Third period went by, no ice. I'm going, why would they bring me up? You know, I was enjoying myself where I was. Then the next day, they, uh, after practice, they called me and said, stick around your hotel, there's something in the makings. And I got traded uh, to Quebec for Terry Martin and Davey Farish. And my first game was actually the last game in the Detroit Olympia. And uh, lo and behold, if I didn't score my first goal there in the Olympia, and uh, things went on pretty well because I hooked up with Robbie Fatorik and Jamie Hissop, who I played with the year before, and we we took off in great manner. Like, But the only problem was we were English-speaking line in Quebec, and that didn't go over well. <laughs> and a lot of people probably don't know this. Uh, the Russians were touring at that time. And I actually scored a goal against Vladislav Treczak, which stands out in my mind huge. And, and uh, a lot of, not a lot of people can say that.
0: No. Okay, well, what was that goal like? How did, how did the puck go in?
1: Well, I was coming down the ice with Robbie, actually, Robbie Fatorik on a 2 on one and I look up and I go, he's standing in the middle of his net. I, I guess he doesn't think I'm a threat. And I was going to pass all the way in, and I got to the top of the circles, and he's still standing there. And I said, well, I'm going to shoot it. And sure enough, he shot it, and it hit the middle of the net. And I go, he didn't make a very good move on me, but I'll take it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, hey, Reg, we could talk highlights for a long time, but you've got another highlight to your hockey career today. Congratulations once again. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy everything about today.
1: Oh, thanks, Mike. I mean, I, I appreciate everything, but uh, what the hunters are bringing up and bringing back the old, old class of guys. And, I mean, we all still feel part of it that we were a stepping stone. So I appreciate that. And, and uh, I'm really looking forward to tonight.
0: Our next guest has really been championing this cause, especially when it comes to parents. And she joins us in studio right now, Charlene Doak-Gabauer, who is the author of The Internet, Our Children in Charge. A theory of digital supervision, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. Digital supervision, because all the pictures that we've all put up online, you don't think too much about it. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, where did that one come from? Where did this one go? And those are the things that we have to think about. And again, Charlene, you have been championing this cause. Welcome back to the studio. It's great to have you.
2: Great to be here again. Thank you, Mike.
0: Let's kind of look at where our world is sitting. I'm sure there's been a lot of stuff that has happened since the last time we've talked. Number one, you've got a book, The Internet, Our Children in Charge, which I love the question, even <laughs> even in the name. And it kind of implies a lot of things because you take a look at how young people are when they get their first phone Mm -hmm. and the lack of things that we probably teach them. And uh, we've got an interesting recipe going together. When we look at digital supervision, it's a great big topic. But is there a place that parents can kind of begin with in order to understand digital supervision? Uh,
2: To read my book. (laughs) <laughs> it's, um the beginning is to realize there's a problem. And too often I've, I've heard, I've talked to some politicians, others are pretty well on board, but a lot of them will say, is this really a problem in Canada? And I have to tell everyone I've spoken in Iceland, Europe, India, the United States, Canada. This is a global problem. And there's no need to start uh, rubbing it off your shoulder and saying, oh, there's no problem because it's a huge problem in Canada. There have been incidents lately in London, Ontario, that met the news. And there is so much going on that does not make the news because it's um, it, it's a dark secret that families don't want to share. But it's important that we do share what's going on with our children. So in terms
0: of a child getting a phone at 12, 13 years old, it's almost like a tool that they need to have in order to stay connected to friends and things like that. It's it's kind of how everybody has started to communicate, right or wrong. If you're going to do that, a lot of parents will say, well, I need all your passwords and I need to be able to see it at any time I want to, and they'll set some ground rules like that. Is that a decent start or should we be setting different rules for internet supervision?
2: Um. The biggest thing is for parents to realize that they own that phone. And when I speak in schools, I will ask for a show of hands, how many of you own a phone? Every child will put their hand up. They got it for Christmas, their birthday, and and then I'll tell them, no, you don't, your parents do. Because your parents are paying for the data. Your parents are paying for that phone. You don't get to do that until you're 18, so your parents own the phone. And it's important for parents to realize that having some sort of contract with their children when they give them a phone is a first step. For example, when you're at the dinner table, you are not bringing your phone. When you go to bed or the bathroom, you are not taking your phone. You are docking your phone. Because the biggest epidemic right now are nudes with children. And that means sending nudes of their genitalia, their breasts, whatever. And... Whether it's their body or not, they are producing child pornography. And as soon then, as that's on a phone, that's child pornography, right? As soon as it right? is. And then the parents own the phone. They own the child pornography. And I, um, I know the city police have been recommending that uh, people have me speak or read my book because they were at a recent summit that my charity had, the International Summit to End Internet Child Exploitation. And uh, they're realizing, uh, let's put it this way, Mike. Too many people are, are going out, they're talking to kids and so on, and saying, you do this, you do that, you're eight years old, you make this decision. And I've developed digital supervision because these children are too young to take ownership for that type of decision. That's why to be on social media, you're supposed to be 13. And I've had parents tell me, look at this beautiful web page my six-year-old has designed. And I'm like, hello. <laughs> Your child is way too young to even be doing that. Get them outside doing things. Get them off these devices as much as you can. We're talking with Charlene Doke-Gabauer. Her book is The Internet,
0: Our Children in Charge, a theory of digital supervision, and because our devices, are just, they're always around us, and we look at it, and we know what tools we use this for, but we don't seem to understand what tools we might use it for, or other people might use all of these digital means for. So, in terms of, of setting ground rules... You mentioned don't take it to the bathroom. Don't take it to when you go to bed. Don't you know? Don't bring it to the dinner table. Things like that. In terms of of how you set where your child can go or what they use this for, how do you start a conversation like that?
2: Well, it's important to have the knowledge as a parent, and most people don't. We're all busy. Uh, we're practicing our traditional methods of parenting. And the Internet has not been in full force. It it started probably in the year 2000 when it was in schools and the Internet. I know because I'm a teacher, or was. And uh, people need to realize within 20 years, the digital age has not crept up. It has bulldozed up. And we need to start practicing digital supervision with our traditional parenting skills. We need to catch up to the digital age. Let's make that choice. Let's choose to practice digital supervision. I even have had uh, politicians, one of whom may be using digital supervision as part of a campaign platform because they see it as so necessary in today's society. I, I can't emphasize enough that our children are the most independent generation of any generation in the history of the world. Is that a good thing? No, it isn't. Not on the, these devices. Um, the parents are driving their kids to schools. They're, they're, they're taking them to sporting events and music lessons and protecting them, taking them into malls, because the Internet has brought a lot of predation out of the woodwork, because these people are talking to each other and they think they're family like we're we're good like we're do, we're all doing this so what's wrong with it but parents don't realize it, they give the key to their router to their children without any type of boundaries they just say here's your ipad here's your laptop for gaming here's your your cell phone and we need to supervise our children directly on those devices we need to give them the guidance Instead of saying "Yo, you talk to those people," I, I don't know about you, Mike, but when I was a kid, I lied to my parents. I don't mind admitting that on television or on radio, and everyone listening has lied to their parents. Sure. In fact, my dear sainted mother, I still lie to her sometimes, <laughs> just because you know you always want your parents proud. And as a parent, we need to start going on these devices, telling our children at random, "I'm going to check your cell phone." And moms and dads and grandparents out there, grandparents are not benign to this problem because grandchildren love to go to their grandparents' house because the Internet's wide open. <laughs> you know, they can do whatever they want there. And do you want to have a conversation with the police as a parent or a grandparent to say, your child has uh, nude of their genitalia on something and they sent it to friends? Now, the parents may own the phone, but they sent it to friends while they were at their grandparents' house. That's not a conversation you want to have. No. So I, I tell parents, you need to start looking at the cell phones. Look at the pictures. You will be amazed. I have had parents, kids that are six, seven years old, finding they've they've given an old cell phone of theirs to the child. And this was just last summer, I the most recent one gave the cell phone to a child. The child has the key to the router so they can get on the internet. So this child was taking nudes and the parents called and said, what do we do about this? And I said, you find out where he's sending the nudes. Oh no, he told us he's not sending the nudes anywhere. And I'm like, the child did not take those nudes for nothing. They are sending them somewhere. If it's a friend down the street, do you want Billy's father or mother to say, there's a nude here that your son sent. The police will come to your door, confiscate everything and say, who, who took that picture? Mm-hmm. So the child, not wanting to be in trouble, might say, my daddy did. So then daddy's standing there, jaw dropped to the floor, wondering how that happened. It is not a conversation you want to have. Furthermore, if your child is doing that and they're circulating it in the school, in one hour, a school of a thousand. It takes less than an, less than an hour for one picture to circulate. We we need to start thinking about this and guiding our children. They are too young to take ownership for those decisions. We need to step up to the plate and say, "These are the rules. I am watching." We need to, as part of digital supervision. We need a filter between the router and the computer. The filter will do so much but when a child is on a gaming system they're on a different server the filter's not touching that what about the cell phones and um, I think you mentioned blocking you can block a child just so far but they get older they can get around just about anything (laughs) they wind up knowing more than we do that's why we need humanity supervising humanity again Mm -hmm. instead of depending on hardware and software we as parents have to start doing this. We have to start guiding our children.
0: Those powerful words you said, uh, we own the phones. Yes. And we we got to start taking advantage of we own the phones.
2: And what's on them?
0: And what's on them? Exactly. Charlene, it's always great talking with you. Thank you so much. Charlene's book is called The Internet: Our Children in Charge. Theory of Digital Supervision, if it's a conversation you haven't had with your kids or your grandkids, you may want to have that conversation or you may want to do the random check-in. All right, let's see what's there and uh, and at least have that conversation so that they know that it is there. Charlene, all the best.
2: Thank you, and I'm leaving a copy of my book for you. People can purchase it on Amazon in Chapters coles. It's apparently being stocked in Amazon now. Love it. Love it. So they can get it within a day.
0: You've done such a great job. It's It's been amazing watching this grow. And uh, <laughs> thanks for being a champion of the cause.
2: Thank you, Mike, for having me.
0: Professor Matt Farrell joins us. He's a professor of political science at Fanshawe College. And, Professor Farrell, maybe we can rewind some time before we go forward here. Because the Iowa caucus has been called a a mess, for lack of a better word. But unless you're following what's happening very closely, you may not know the reason why. Can you take us through what went wrong in Iowa?
3: It it was definitely a mess. And, And on a good day, frankly, Mike... The whole process is quite confusing and chaotic anyway, without some of the problems that they experienced in Iowa. And for background, this is the first step in a whole bunch of these state-by-state elections. It's kind of like having a leadership convention, but you've got to have about 50 of them, one in each state. And in the the Iowa caucuses, it looks like they they physically have to get in the room and do the math and write it down on a piece of paper and then submit it on an app. Well, it turns out the app didn't work, so they went to fall back on the paper tallies of, of some of those votes in the room and, well, the the math was wrong on the paper, and there was all kinds of complications with that. And so that doesn't really you know, shed a good light on the process. And I think it really underscores, I mean, this is a problem in general in American politics is that the political parties themselves run these contests, they run the elections. And so typically what you have... In in, You know, the people in charge of the process like this tend to be good at fundraising. They like to talk on TV, but they're not really good at managing an event like this. (laughs) And that was pretty evident in the Iowa caucuses. There was really a bit of a lack of leadership and and execution in terms of just the operation of the the caucuses.
0: Okay. Well, then let's look at how this now progresses. And, you know, there's talk at at this time of year about lanes. Can you explain Mm -hmm. why the word lanes comes up so much?
3: Well, the candidates at this stage are trying to find sort of a sweet spot for voters that will uh, attract, that they'll be able to attract. And so you might hear of, uh, you know, a socialist leaning candidate or a candidate in the moderate lane trying to appeal to moderate voters. And that's sort of a popular thing to talk about, that each candidate is sort of in a um, an ideological lane, aiming for a specific set of voters and they'll they'll talk policy related to that, and it definitely sounds like that when you listen to some of the speeches and some of the the campaign ads they run. But really, when you break down the numbers, there's a real demographic difference and instead of ideological lanes, I would probably argue that they're more demographic alignments than they are anything else, for example, younger voters seem to love bernie uh older voters like uh, Buttigieg. Um, Younger voters hate Buttigieg. And there's a sort of a a very kind of demographic element to the support that Joe Biden is getting as well. So each of these candidates isn't really necessarily competing on different ideological principles, but it's how to reach the masses of voters, the different groups in the Democratic coalition that are going to help you win the nomination.
0: We're talking with Professor Matt Farrell from Fanshawe College as we look ahead at what is coming as 2020 in November kind of zooms toward us. And when you when you kind of go through, you know, looking to attract voters, it, it kind of gets away. And maybe, maybe you could identify this in politics as to why you can't just present you and and that's it. And, and that's good enough instead of trying to present something you might not even be.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's. It's uh, it, it's just a curious process because you have to start. You, we go through this long process of what what ends up being a couple years, a couple years in length of trying to appeal to the most extreme voices in your party, and so that tends to bring out these you know um, grand statements and policy ideas. Let's have healthcare for all, and, and that was what, that's probably one of the bigger topics of debate. And then when you get to November and you have to broaden your appeal to a, a more general audience. Then the messaging changes a little. So in, there's there's that perception that candidates aren't really being themselves and they're saying whatever they can. And then, you know there's an element of that. They are they're just speaking to different audiences. So the audience right now is very narrow, and so they have to say a lot of things to get them excited. Whereas the broader audience in the general election is going to precipitate an entirely different uh, set of behavior. So what we see is candidates kind of chasing different messages and different ideas of themselves and projecting different uh, uh, different stories to us. But uh, that's just a function of trying to hit different messages to different audiences as time progresses.
0: Professor Matt Feller with us from Fanshawe College, professor of political science. As we kind of look at the way things are playing out in the United States, so what comes next?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, these, these early states, you know, the Iowa and New Hampshire, they seem pretty insignificant because they're so early. And there's such small numbers of, you know, delegates, the points. At, at stake in them. But if you can do well in these early states, then you're winning. And if you're winning, then you can attract more money and help your campaign keep going into the bigger states where you can you have the potential to get more votes and more points, more delegates at the convention, all of which will add to your tally. And uh, eventually hitting the magic number is the goal of, of winning the nomination. So these, these two early states, New Hampshire um, uh, is next. We just had Iowa. Really, that's really about getting traction, momentum, and and feeding into the, the, the bigger contest. So when you get into states like Nevada and Florida and South Carolina, where there's a lot more at stake, then once we get closer to the spring and summer, we'll start to see a different picture emerge. So it's it's easy to shrug our shoulders and say, this is so early, this isn't going to matter come November. Well, this does matter for momentum and fundraising. The candidates need to do this. They need to attract endorsements. They need to sort of show that they're viable. This is all about kind of demonstrating your electability at this point in the process before it starts to get really serious come May or June.
0: (laughs) Now, I guess that's a lot of the 101 of this when we go looking ultimately, you're going up against Donald Trump and his Republican side. Do you see the Democrats getting in their own way over this entire process? Could they have done this better?
3: It really uh, looks like a mess on that front. If, you know they, they should be you know the thinking is they should be focusing on on beating their opponent, which is ultimately going to be Donald Trump rather than beating each other up. But this is just the nature of the beast. This happens every uh, every time there's a, a primary w- without a um, a given nominee. It it is pretty combative. It is uh, pretty nasty. And so they do t- tend. It looks like they're in some levels kind of shooting themselves in the foot the way they're running attack ads against each other. Um, but when you look at the, uh, the the polling, if you take each individual candidate and line them up against Donald Trump and who's going to do better. It's uh, it's pretty close, and so the candidates are very attentive to that that messaging. That they are, they do have one eye to that general election. They are thinking about how they are, their message is going to match up against Donald Trump in a general election. So it's something that's very much on their mind. But yeah, you, you can't get away from that impression that maybe they they need to do something to hurry this process up because ultimately they're going to leave their own nominee pretty battered and uh, and damaged going into the general, which is something that. Uh, they don't really want to start from that uh, that position.
0: Professor Farrell, one final thing, and that is a sitting president like Donald Trump, even if you've been through impeachment proceedings, mm-hmm. still is very difficult to unseat. Is this a case in 2020, do you think, that it's going to be tough to beat Donald Trump no matter what?
3: It is, and the the economy right now is doing okay, and so that's... uh that's always good for the sitting president. When, when it comes time to run for re-election, you, you want to see positive, uh, a positive economic picture on, on different fronts. And, and right now he's got that going for him. And so I think the, the, uh, the thing that makes Donald Trump different is that despite the good economy, his, his popularity is still pretty low. Um, so you, know, you would think if it was a different candidate, their popularity might be up in the 60s or something. Um, I still think he will be uh, a formidable force for re-election, just given the nature of the Electoral College and where a lot of his support is in the Rust Belt areas. And uh, I think it will be hard for the Democrats to win. Um, One thing when we look at um, kind of projecting how that's going to go is voter registrations, who is registered to vote for this election compared to the last one. And there's a lot of parts of the country where we're seeing a lot more Democrats register than there were in 2016. So that's a sign that, you know, the Democrats could have a good showing. But also there's a sign that Republican registration is increasing as well. So perhaps there's a lot of votes last time that Donald Trump didn't get that he might be able to attract those voters this time. So I think it's going to be close. Both sides will be energized. And again, just because of the geographic breakdown of the Electoral College and the way different states are, are, are important, I think it's going to make it um, a fascinating race to watch and a really close one.
0: Well, the system is far from perfect. People recognize that, but it is the system and it sure makes it fascinating. Professor Farrell, thank you so much. My pleasure, Mike. You've been listening to the London live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from one to three.